Please open up your Bibles to Ephesians 5. And I want to ask, have you ever asked the question, how do I know what the will of the Lord is? Or maybe you've asked, am I filled with the Spirit when I'm saved? Or do I need to be filled with the Spirit now? Or maybe you've asked as a Christian, how am I supposed to think about alcohol consumption? Well, this is a really diverse set of questions, and we have the ambitious goal today to answer those questions and more because these questions are addressed in our text this morning. We're finishing a section today in Ephesians that taught us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 17 through 21 this morning. But let's read our passage today starting in verse 15. Ephesians five fifteen. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The main point from today's passage is this. Every believer is commanded to live a wise, spirit-controlled life. Every believer is commanded to live a wise, spirit-controlled life. Now, I understand why some people say that Christianity is not a religion of do's and don'ts. And in regard to our salvation, that is exactly right. We cannot earn salvation from our sins. We cannot simply do more good than bad so that our ledger turns out positive and somehow merits forgiveness or entitles us to entrance into heaven. But have you read the Bible? There are an awful lot of do's and don'ts in there. In fact, in verses 15 through 18, we see three pairs. Do not be unwise, do be wise. Do not be foolish, do understand the will of the Lord. Do not be drunk, do be filled with the Spirit. So what gives? Do we need to do things or not? Well, the answer is yes, We do need to do things, but we don't do things because doing so pays our debt to God. Christ has sufficiently done that for his children at the cross. Paul has stated this extensively in Ephesians. But we do these things out of allegiance to Christ. It's an evidence of a heart that is yielded to the lordship of Christ. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus doesn't mince words. So let's be crystal clear. Our works do not save us. They are an evidence of our salvation. Our identity is not in what we do, but our identity is Christ. And when we look at these commands this morning, we're looking at how to walk out the reality of what Christ has done for us in a way that pleases him. And we're gonna see it affects us all. See, we are seeking to become who we are. So we don't want to merely agree with these commands. We want to obey them. As James said, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of it. So let's take a look at our first set of commands today. And it's my first point, the command to understand. 
Verses 15 to 16 told us to be wise and make the best use of time because the days are evil. This phrase, because the days are evil, explains why we should be wise in verse 15, but it's a hinge grammatically that also tells us why we should not be foolish and understand the will of the Lord. Let's look at the first part of this command, do not be foolish. So what exactly is foolishness? Well, the Bible gives us a number of examples and demonstrations of this. We're going to look at a few right now. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So this says the fool denies God's existence and then lives a wicked, sinful life. Foolishness is also demonstrated in a lack of trust in God. In 2 Chronicles 16, we see a story of King Asa, who was the king of Judah at that time. And he didn't rely on the Lord for a victory like he was told to do uh, in this war, but he relied in his own strength and cunning. And through a prophet, the Lord tells him that he has done foolishly by not paying attention to the Lord. And from now on, he's going to have wars. So not only does the fool not trust God's leading, foolishness risks losing God's strong support in our disobedient endeavors. Furthermore, foolishness is demonstrated by a lack of knowing God and elevating our own opinions. Look at what Proverbs 18.2 says. It says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Jeremiah 4.22 says, for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they know not. See, in Ephesians 5.17, Paul is saying, look carefully how you walk. Do not be foolish. Instead, have understanding and specifically understand what the will of the Lord is. So what is the will of the Lord? Well, in the Bible, there are two clear and distinct uses of the term, the will of God. The first use is what is referred to as God's will of decree or his sovereign will. This refers to God's overarching will being played out over time by his active direction. Paul was talking about this sovereign will in Ephesians 1, verse 11, when he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working all things to the counsel of his will. That is his sovereign will. The other use of the will of God in Scripture is what is called his will of command or his revealed will. It's God's will for us to do what he says to do. We've already seen in this chapter in Ephesians that God wills for us to flee impurity, yet I can still disobey that will and feed lust in my heart. God wills for us to build each other up with our speech, but I can still disobey that will and use careless or intentional words to cut at someone. John Piper summarizes this in this way. He says, on the one hand, Christ is a sovereign high king and nothing happens apart from his will. 
On the other hand, Christ is a merciful high priest and sympathizes with our weaknesses and pain. The Holy Spirit conquers us and our sins when he wills and allows himself to be quenched and grieved and angered when he wills. His sovereign will is invincible and his will of command can be grievously broken. So we must ask, which will of God is here in Ephesians 5.17? Well, it's the second one, God's will of command. And we are told to look carefully and understand what the will of the Lord is, what he is commanding us to do, what he has revealed to us to obey. So how do we obey this verse? How do we get this understanding? Well, first we see what God has revealed to us. And where can we find that? Yeah, in his word. We cannot understand what God has revealed if we neglect to pay attention to it. In fact, we've already seen its utter foolishness to ignore, neglect, or not trust what God has spoken to us in his word. Psalm 119 verse 130 says this about God's words. It says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Last week, we saw how we are to be children of light, called to walk in the light. Psalm 119 tells us that it is God's word that shows us that way to walk. It brings light. It imparts understanding to us. Do you wish you knew the will of God for your life? Read God's word. Do you want understanding? Read God's word. He has revealed to us all that we need to follow him in the Bible. Another way to obey this command is to apply what you read in God's word to the everyday situations in your life. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and those who practice it have a good understanding. Practice fearing the Lord. Take his word as the sovereign command it is and obey the king. Trust his words in his heart as revealed to you in the Bible. Well, how should I respond to that person who hurt me? What's the will of the Lord in that situation? God's word says you should forgive them as Christ has forgiven you. Well, what do I do when I'm faced with this upcoming event that I'm just really, really dreading? Well, follow Jesus's example in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pray that the cup would pass, but fervently determine to trust and obey the Lord if he would have you drink it. Lastly, internalize God's word. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Think on it deeply. You see, most of what we do in our life does not involve a premeditation or a conscious time of reflection. Could you imagine if every single action you took was preceded by, I need a time of reflection for this. But Jesus says in Matthew 12, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, our mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, 
People will give an account for every careless word they speak. You see, what's in our heart spills out into our life. It overflows into our actions. Those times we are acting when we're not taking a time to consciously think before, what's spilling out is what we have stored up inside. Pride spills out when our internal dialogue is about how great we are instead of how great God is. Envy comes out when I seek other things to satisfy my soul instead of being full of the one who alone can satisfy my soul. And on and on and on. Remember, we are to look carefully. Are there any ways you are being foolish that you need to turn from? Do you seek God's wisdom and direction in his word regularly? Do you apply the understanding that you receive from God's word? Or do you just simply read it, agree or not agree with it, check a box and move on with life? You may say, but what do I do in a particular situation, Christopher, that's not explicitly talked about in scripture? Like, do I buy this car or do I not buy this car? What is the will of the Lord for me there? Well, let me ask you, are you trying to love God? Are you trying to faithfully serve him? Are you trying to obey his commands to faithfully steward what he has given you for his glory and for his kingdom purposes? Are you regularly seeking him in his word? Are you submitting to what is said there and to his leading? Are you praying, asking for direction? Are you seeking counsel from others like he instructs us to do in his word? Are you applying the guidelines and principles that he has revealed to you in his word? If so, then trust him. Trust the Holy Spirit to lead you in applying the principles and guidelines revealed in the Bible. We need the Spirit to illuminate this truth and to empower us and lead us, which brings us to the next set of commands we see in our text this morning. It's my second point. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18 reads, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Again, we see two commands here. Do not be drunk. Do be filled with the Spirit. Now, why does Paul single out drunkenness here? I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, in Ephesus at this time, just about every pagan religious practice was accompanied by an abuse of alcohol. We've talked about the temple of Artemis that was right there in the middle of Ephesus and the despicable acts that would go on inside the temple. Well, the precursor of going into the temple was consuming an excess amount of alcohol, getting completely smashed outside the temple and heading on in. Additionally, there were those that worshiped Dionysus that believed intoxication led to inspiration. They believed intoxication led to inspiration, so they would get drunk a lot. But I guess I can't totally refute that claim, but let's be honest for a second. What inspired idea ever came from a drunk person that led to anything good or wise? Most, if not all, 
are extremely ignorant and foolish and quite often dangerous. Paul just finished telling us not to be foolish and have understanding. And he says that this drunkenness leads to debauchery. See, the meaning of the Greek word translated debauchery here, it's the negative of to save or to heal. So it literally means to not heal. Drunkenness leads to not healing. It leads to not saving. See, this verse is all about control. Excessive alcohol impairs one's ability to process thoughts well. It impairs judgment. It impairs the ability to control their own body. And quite frankly, it impairs worship to the one true God. Now, in contrast, being filled with the Spirit is about yielding control to the Spirit, being empowered to live out a life that pleases the Lord. Now, I do want to sidebar briefly here and talk about biblical boundaries for alcohol that we see in Scripture. See, there are actually more references in the Bible viewing wine drinking in a positive light than in a negative light. However, there are five situations where the Bible clearly forbids the drinking of alcohol. First, The Bible forbids the drinking of alcohol when it leads to excess. We see that here in our passage in Ephesians. Also, look at the end of chapter of of Proverbs 23, and you're going to see a good description there of what happens when alcohol is done in excess. Alcohol should never be consumed in excess. Number two, the Bible forbids um, alcohol use when it becomes addictive or used as a coping mechanism. When times are hard, we don't turn to alcohol. We turn to Jesus. When I need to calm my spirit, I've had a hard day. I don't turn to chemical substances. I rest in the peace that passes understanding found only in my Savior. Jesus is our only Savior, not alcohol, not escaping reality, not numbing ourselves to the pain. You see, alcohol is a depressant. The spirit is a stimulant. It stimulates our understanding of God's word. It stimulates actions that please God. It stimulates worship to the one true God. All right, number three, alcohol is forbidden when it offends the weak conscience of another believer. See, we are to love others more than ourselves. We're to lay down our lives for each other. Romans 14, 15 says that if a brother or sister is grieved by what I eat or drink, I am not walking in love. God's word says, don't be a stumbling block to your brother because of your sense of entitlement. Count others more significant than yourself. All right, number four, alcohol is forbidden in scripture when it hurts a Christian testimony or if it negatively affects the glory of God. Verse many of us I'm sure are familiar with, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If your alcohol drinking is not to the glory of God, it is forbidden. All right, lastly, 
Alcohol is forbidden if there is doubt in your mind about it. See, Romans 14, again, interestingly talks very specifically about this in terms of our food and drink and the importance of our life and actions being of faith, not of doubt. All right, so with all these dangers associated stemming from an improper use of alcohol, it's actually really understandable why many Christians choose to abstain from drinking alcohol at all. Now, at Risen Hope Church, we have some leaders that abstain from alcohol, and we have some that don't. However, it's important that we don't become Pharisees and become legalistic about something, putting rules on something that God hasn't put on. But on the flip side, let's also not be so licentious and entitled that we neglect to walk in love with our community of believers, with the glory of God being our ultimate pursuit. Here's the principle. I will not be mastered by anything except Jesus Christ. So in verse 18 in Ephesians 5, Paul's saying, don't impair your ability to understand to be mastered by alcohol. Do be filled up with the one who illuminates, who enlightens our hearts, who gives understanding and who gives much good fruit. We are to be people under the influence, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This command to be filled is interesting. There's four aspects I'm going to hit real quick. First one, it's an imperative. It is a command. This is not optional. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Number two, it is a plural command. Each believer is commanded to be filled with the Spirit. It's not like being filled with the Spirit is for one group of believers, but not really for this group of believers. All right, thirdly, it's a passive command. This is interesting. We are commanded to be filled, yet we do not do the filling. We cannot fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. It's something that God does. And then fourth, it's a present tense command. It's something that is actively happening. It's not past tense. It's not future tense. It's present. In fact, the literal translation of this phrase would be, be being filled or be continually being filled with the Spirit. You might ask, uh, wasn't I filled with the Spirit when I was saved? Well, yeah, in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us we have been given this Holy Spirit as a seal. It's a guarantee of our salvation. And we're not just given a sliver of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit in fullness. Yet, Paul prays just three verses later, that the believers, the ones who have the Holy Spirit as a seal and guarantee, that they would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of God, having the eyes of their heart enlightened. He is talking about them experiencing the reality of the Holy Spirit more and more and more. Jesus said this in John 16 about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit enables us to see the Lord and follow him. 
He enlightens our hearts to understand. Be being filled with the Spirit means keep growing in your experience of the Holy Spirit. We have union with Christ through our salvation. And as a result of this salvation, we have communion with Christ through the Holy Spirit. So if this is a command to be filled, how do we obey this if Christ is ultimately the one who is doing the filling? Well, thankfully, Scripture's not silent on this. First thing we're to do is pray. We already saw that in Ephesians 1. We see it again in Ephesians 3.16. Paul is praying for believers to grow in their experience of the Spirit. And so should we. We should be praying that Christ would fill us with his Spirit freshly. That we would experience the reality of it more and more and more. Secondly, faith. It's interesting that faith is often paired in Scripture with being full of the Holy Spirit. There's some connection that is there. In Acts, Stephen, who was the first martyr, and Barnabas, who uh, helped Paul in his ministry, are both mentioned as men being full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Galatians 3.5 says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Experiencing the Spirit involves faith, and faith requires an object. It's not just this, I have faith. Well, what do you have faith in? The Bible says, have faith in God, because he's faithful in his promises. All right, third way to be filled with the Spirit. We've already said this. uh, Read the Word. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. The Spirit illuminates and interprets the word to us. You see, being filled with the Holy Spirit is being filled with the Spirit of Christ, and God's word is Christ revealed to us. We are filled more with Christ's Spirit when we are filled more with the word of God. Now, we're going to close out our passage today seeing four results of being filled with the Spirit. It's my last point this morning. The Spirit-filled experience. Point three, the Spirit-filled experience. Verses 19 to 21 contain four participle phrases that all expound on being filled with the Spirit. These are four results that flow from being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 19 through 21. We just had be being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's take these one at a time. First of all, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. One result of being filled is truth-filled corporate worship. This should happen in our weekly gatherings, but also at community groups and D groups and one-on-one when we're together, informal gatherings. We address each other with truth about God. We sing to God and we sing to each other. And it's interesting the musical references in this verse. See, music cements things into our minds more effectively than not having music. It's why you can hardly think of the ABCs without singing in your head 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You get it? It's, it's why you have a song that you don't even like and it's stuck in your brain and you can't seem to stop singing it. See, music amplifies whatever lyrics are paired with it. And it's why we need to be very careful what we are ingesting. What is your regular diet of words coming into your mouth paired with music that is helping to cement it into you? Be careful what you take in. Look at your diet. A spirit-filled people are a singing people. Now we're given three categories of songs here. Real quick, Psalms. These are the God-inspired songs given to us in Scripture. These are God-breathed truths that we can sing back to the Lord and to each other. Second uh, category is hymns. These are songs not in the biblical canon, but they're filled with truth specifically purposed to draw attention to the character of God, to his actions, to his glory and for his glory. And contrary to popular Christian myth, the definition of a hymn has absolutely nothing to do with how old a song is. It's not like a song can't be a hymn until it's been put in a barrel, aged in a brine solution, and then one day you pop the cork and out comes, oh, no longer a song, but now it's a hymn. I'm making a bit of a joke here, but behold our God is a hymn. God undefeatable is a hymn. Save my soul that we just sang a bit ago is a hymn. Hymns point us to the glory of God. Third category, spiritual songs. These are songs that encourage us to think on spiritual things. The song, um, I can only imagine. I think that fits into this category. Uh, many of you are familiar with that song. It's, it's a song that doesn't exactly put the focus immediately on God, but it challenges us to think about our experience in eternity with God. It helps us to think about spiritual things. See, spirit-filled believers will sing together and point each other to God and truths and implications of following God. They are to be a singing people. All right, the next result, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, at first glance, you might be like, didn't we just talk about that? Well, look closer at this. This phrase, make melody to the Lord in your heart, is talking about something inside. See, this is not merely an external proclamation. This is an internal transformation. In your heart, you are singing to the Lord. This is the soft heart that rejoices in the Lord at all times. That causes praise, as the psalmist says, to be continually on my lips, continually in my mouth. All right, the third result, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is similar to other verses you may already know, like 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But did you catch the difference? Verse 20 uses a different preposition. It didn't say to give thanks in everything. It says to give thanks always for everything. Now, you might be thinking, did God make a typo here? Because I, is he really calling me to give thanks 
for everything. I mean, I get that I'm supposed to give thanks in the midst of my suffering, but am I really to give thanks for my suffering? Yes, you are. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this, but this is where your theology gets walked out. If God is sovereign and working all things according to the counsel of his will, like Ephesians 1 says, then that means our hard circumstances, our sufferings, our trials, are all part of his good, benevolent plan, and we can thank him for them. We can thank him for them because of what we know of his character. If God wasn't good, loving, compassionate, merciful, etc., then he couldn't be trusted. But he's both God and good. He's a loving father that moves toward us in our brokenness and he can be trusted. We can thank God for our circumstances because they are part of his wise sovereign plan to glorify himself and to redeem and sanctify his people. James 1 tells us we can thank God for our hard trials because the end result will be growth and we will be complete lacking in nothing. Paul tells the Philippian church in Philippians 1.29, he says that their suffering is a gift to them, that it has been granted to you, is the words that it says there. See, we are to give thanks always for everything. I can thank God when I am treated unfairly because he is sovereignly working out something in my life for my good, according to Romans 8.28. We can thank God for presidents and kings, and it's not because they're good, but because according to 1 Timothy 2, God put them there and we can trust him. This seems somewhat scandalous, but let's make sure we remain biblical. We don't want to Just affirm one verse and ignore other verses. Let's be clear. The Bible says we don't celebrate sin. We don't celebrate evil. We don't get excited about atrocities that we're hearing on the news every night. But we can thank God because he is sovereignly working all things out according to his wise plan. He is using evil to demonstrate the need for a savior. He's using trials to refine his people and bless them for eternity. Don't forget Paul's prayer from back in Ephesians 1. He said that being filled with the Spirit enables us to give thanks for everything because of the hope that we have in Christ. The glorious inheritance Christ has in his saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Verse 20 tells us the believer should be filled with the Spirit, thanking God the good Father in the name of the reigning Lord Jesus Christ. All right, our last one, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm not going to spend much time on this because this verse is a hinge. It definitely relates back. It's a result of being filled with the Spirit that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But it's also setting up the next sections of Ephesians where Paul is going to flesh out in much more granularity the way this relating to each other works in three specific relationships. The husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, 
and the master-slave relationship, or in our time, the employer-employee relationship. But let me say this. Being filled with the Spirit means counting others as more significant than yourself. That's Philippians 2.3. Another way to put this is how Jesus said it in Mark 10. His disciples were arguing about who could have the best position. And he said, if you want to be number one, you need to be number last. If you want to be the greatest, you need to become the least. Submitting to one another means taking the form of a servant and seeking the good of others around you and then doing all the one another's that we're commanded to do in scripture. Pray for one another, love one another, care for one another, speak the truth in love with one another, be with one another. So as we close, let me remind you of a couple of takeaways, and then we're going to do verse 19 together and sing together. Band, you can come on up. First of all, if you're not a follower of Christ, you do not have the Holy Spirit, nor can you be filled with the Holy Spirit apart from a saving relationship with Christ. Your greatest need today is to repent of your sins. Stop living your life for your own glory, your own purposes, your own kingdom, and receive the abundant mercy, the grace and love that Christ has for you in his kingdom and start living for him. For those of you that are already followers of Christ, are you being continually filled with the spirit? Are you growing in your understanding of God's will? Have you read the instruction manual or are you just winging it through life? Are you properly powered by the Spirit to accomplish what you are called to do? Let me be really practical here. What is your devotional life like? Do you give it a priority? Do you daily feast on the word and seek God out in it? Do you pray asking God for faith, asking him for direction, asking him for help, asking him to fill you fresh and lead you in his ways? When life is hard, what do you run to? Do you run to God or do you run to other things? And not just when life is good either. Do you recognize on your easy days, you have a daily dependence on the Lord and the power of his spirit? Three simple things. Fill yourself with God's word. Pray for faith and for God to fill you with his spirit. And look carefully how you walk and be wise in the Lord. Let's go ahead and stand and sing together.